Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Albert Koh. But first, we'd like to check in on current health and healthcare topics. And I know there's an article that got your attention this week from the New England Journal of Medicine. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So this is a, a study about leadless pacemakers. So let me just set the, the stage for this. So a leadless pacemaker is a type of heart rhythm management device. You know, for people whose hearts, they're not beating properly. They may need a device that helps them to uh, trigger the heart to beat in a more normal way. And of course, this was a great breakthrough many, many years ago in cardiology that we could help people like this by putting in these pacemakers. But, you know, what we've been using are these threading these leads into the heart. And then so for anyone who's seen this, there's like these long wires that go into the heart. And then the wires are connected to a box. It's, that's There's a tunnel that's created under the skin, believe it or not, where the, the this device resides and has the battery. And, you know, nobody likes it. And the there. box is in the chest, right? The I mean, under the skin, yeah. usually right. in the chest. These pockets can get infected. They can cause yeah. problems. The leads themselves can fracture. Yep. And so people start thinking about, like, is there a better way to do this? So then technology was advancing. There was advances in miniaturization, you know, the development of smaller, more powerful electronic components that, that could fit entirely inside a device that wouldn't have to reside in this box that was in people's chest, but actually could be within the, the pacemaker itself. And then battery technology was advancing so that very small batteries could last up to maybe 15 years. Again, one of the reasons to have this box burrowed under the skin in your chest was so it could have a big enough battery that could last a long time. Yeah. And then and then if you put it in there not connected to a box and without these leads, the leadless pacemaker, you needed some way to communicate with it if you needed to change the settings and so forth. So wireless communication technology began to advance. And then also you needed to find a way if you're going to put these things in the heart without leads, how are you going to keep them in the right place so that they could trigger the heart? So the the this sort of active fixation mechanism, the way to be able to screw it into the wall of the heart so it will stay in the right place. So at the end of the day, miniaturization, battery technology, wireless communication, this fixation has led to the the, the development of these these little pacemakers that can be actually basically placed in the heart and they can be set in place and then they can trigger the heart to, to beat and they can be communicated with through the wireless communication and if you look at them on an x-ray, for example, it just seems like there's something floating in space. It's obviously not floating in space. It's connected to the wall, but it's inside the heart. Right. Now, initially, they came out with this so that they could put one of these in the heart. But for a lot of people, they need to actually, they have problems both in the upper and lower chambers. So they need to be able to have a pacemaker at the top and the bottom of the heart that can work in synchrony, that can take the place of the normal sequence of the heart's uh, depolarization which is basically the electrical signal to get the heart to to squeeze the upper chamber than the lower chamber. And now what they've just come out with is this, you can actually put in two of these pacemakers, one into the upper chamber, one into the lower chamber. People are always thinking this would open up the possibility that many more people could get it. And this study in the New England Journal of Medicine, I know that was long wind up, but this study in the New England Journal of Medicine was 300 people who were enrolled in a study to, to determine whether or not implanting these leadless, that is these sort of little two devices in the heart, not connected to wires, not connected to anything in the chest, but leadless ones, 
could how well would it work? And they first found out that when it came to safety, 90% of these people were free from any uh, procedure-related serious adverse effects. This, by the way, is interesting, Howard, because people may say only 90%. When you put in a regular pacemaker, 10% of people actually have a problem, a major serious right. adverse right. event. But, but this was no worse than that. It was, a, it was on par with it. And then when they tested the, the, the sensing, because this has to sense whether the heart beats on its own, and when they tested the triggering, whether or not it could actually bring about a heart rate, all these metrics actually turn out to be quite, quite good. So this represents a really major breakthrough. It's still an, an experimental device. It's, it needs to be uh, 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 go through the FDA process. But, but this was a really remarkable study that said, actually, we may get to a point where we don't have the leads, we don't have the pocket in the chest, and we're just able to put these into the heart, screw them into the right place, and then people now have a means to overcome the problem of uh, the heart's not beating normally and that the pacemaker actually is the right way to help them. Yeah, no, I, I saw the article and, um, you know, in radiology, we do get to see the technologies roll out pretty early because we see them inside patients. And I've seen leadless pacemakers for a while now, but I've not seen a dual chamber. And this was a substantial advance. And, you know, when you talk to people who have pacemakers in, it's not inconsequential to have this box under their skin that can sometimes irritate them or it, it can be... Uh, you can actually see it on people. So this is an advance that's a great thing and, and hopefully it continues to work well. And uh, maybe one day we'll even see that these things can recharge off the energy of the heart so that they don't even have to get a new battery. <laughs> I don't know about that. So, and people may be wondering like, well, so who, why, why would people choose this? I'll, I'll just go tick them off. It's a less invasive procedure. They don't have to tunnel anything under the skin. There's no leads. Reduced risk of complications, presumably, because you don't have that potential pocket infection where you've tunneled that thing. It's not visible. Lots of people do care right. what it looks like. They don't like this box exactly. under their skin. And uh, it has the potential for fewer long-term complications as well. The leads won't fracture. Sometimes yeah. in current pacemakers, leads will fracture or they have to be taken out. In this case, you know, you've know, you got, got it in. So anyway, I think this is going to be interesting to watch and see what happens. It's a little more expensive, I think, right now. But, but some people think long-term it may be uh, better off, even cost-effective. And so uh, we'll just keep an eye on it. Great. Good, let's get on to our interview. Dr. Albert Koh is the inaugural Raj and Indra Nui Professor of Public Health and Epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health and a practicing infectious disease specialist at Yale New Haven Hospital and a professor at the Yale School of Medicine. His work centers on the intersection of rapid urbanization and inequity with infectious diseases. Dr. Koh coordinates a research program in Brazil and has implemented community-based interventions for the Zika virus, leptospirosis, and COVID-19, among other epidemics. Additionally, Dr. Koh is a collaborating researcher at the Osvaldo Cruz Foundation, a leading global public health institution associated with the Brazilian Ministry of Health. During the pandemic, he co-chaired Governor Lamont's Reopen Connecticut Advisory Group. Dr. Koh holds a bachelor's degree from MIT and an MD from Harvard. He completed his internal medicine residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and an infectious disease fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. What's more, he's the first returning guest to the podcast. And I went back and looked at uh, that episode, and it turns out he was our guest in the week leading up to Christmas of 2021 when Omicron was hitting us really hard. Today, our pandemic restrictions have been almost completely relaxed. 
Our own hospital has a COVID census around 10, a level we haven't seen since the highly restrictive summer of 2020, and life seems awfully normal to most people. There's a lot of ground we can cover today, but our listeners would love to hear some words of wisdom from you on whether COVID is now just another respiratory virus. Do we still have to worry about new variants? Should we just enjoy the beautiful summer and stop asking questions? So Albert, first again, thank you for coming and and impart your wisdom on us on what we should all be thinking about. Well, thank you very much, Howie and Harlan. It's it's a real pleasure and honor to be invited back, and especially as the first returnee of uh, on your podcast. <laughs> so tell us, what what should we be thinking about COVID-19 now? Like, I'm not asking, I'm not trying to force you to tell us the future, but should we worry about a new variant that could be devastating? Or do we start to think of this as like a flu and there'll be bad and good flu seasons? Yeah, I think, you know, so a lot has happened since we, we last talked. Uh, we went through successive waves of, the car, you know, of different variants different flavors, the Omicron variant. And, you know, so, and, you know, I think what's playing out, at least until now, is, is that although it's much more highly transmissible, it's a lot less virulent. Um, the case, probably the case infection to um, fatality ratio is probably 10 times less than the variants that we had uh, experienced beforehand. So that obviously has changed um, you know, how we think about the virus and how we react to it. I think the other interest, uh, important fact is, is that this virus is much more transmissible. Um, and the, the transmissibility is probably three or four times that of the, of the original ancestral strain that we experienced. So thinking about how we deal with this now, things that we relied on early in the pandemic are not going to work as well. These include face masks, but this is, you know, because of the aerosol transmission and so forth, and also some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions. Now, certainly the vaccines are still holding in terms of, um, you know, in terms of their effectiveness against severe disease, but they're certainly not transmission blocking. You raise the, the advent of a new variant, and one that we particularly worry about is not only that it's more transmissible, it escapes immunity, uh, uh, or there's Im- promotes immune escape from the vaccination or hybrid immunity, but, but if it's going to become more virulent. And, and at this point, we're, you know, we need to double down on surveillance and really keep keeping a close eye. So still uncertainties for the future, but what we've learned in the last year shows us that this virus is much less virulent than we had encountered previously prior to Omicron. What if you could share with folks a little bit about your journey in public health? I mean, what, what really got you to specifically focus into these areas? I mean, how did you even learn that this was an area that you could spend time in and devote a career to? I'm really curious how you how it got started and what were some formative experiences for you? Like many of us in our journeys, uh, both through science, but also through you know medicine and public health, uh, there's a myriad or a complexity to the motivations. But my, one of the driving forces is, of course, my parents. My father was a refugee from North Korea lived in an urban slum, you know, after um, the division of the country, fought in the Korean War, came to the United States to study, spent two years after developing um, hemoptysis or coughing up blood uh, for tuberculosis in a, in a sanitarium in Worcester. He was probably one of the first people. He, he was institutionalized, uh, you know, 1954. 
and uh, he was probably one of the first people to get uh, isoniazid and benefit from really the great, great achievements that we've done in medicine and, and, and in public, public health. That was a major factor. I think the second is, um, you know, n- none of us travel alone, right? Uh, you know, many of us also travel on the backs of giants. And, and I've had, um, you know, great mentors who really showed me how a scientist could be an advocate for social justice. Uh, one is Warren Johnson at Cornell, a real hero during the AIDS pandemic in, in providing care with his colleagues hand in hand uh, in Haiti as equals, equal partners. The other was Lee Riley at, at Berkeley, who was um, uh, the person who actually identified first uh, E. coli 157H7, you know, hemorrhagic colitis, and dedicated his life to working on diarrheal diseases, tuberculosis in, in vulnerable populations. Um, I think the third factor is the just the ability to learn. And I think there's a real le- important lesson to this. The best solutions are not going to be coming top down. They're not going to be coming from places from Brazil. They're going to be coming throughout the world and many times from communities. And it was a real privilege for myself to be one of those learners, uh, spending 15 years in Brazil with the Ministry of Health, working in communities, taking care of patients and learning from them and um, and myself more as a vehicle than as a as a as a mover uh, really one thing i learned in brazil with many of the great public health achievements they they did before i came and while i was there but one was poverty reduction you know through um, conditional cash transfer programs uh, the other is a vaccination program world-class vaccination program that was even resilient to the political pressures of the Bolsonaro government, where more people got vaccinated, 90% of the Brazilian population got vaccinated, you know, much higher than what we experienced here in the United States, equivalent to what we did here in Connecticut. So many lessons learned uh, on that kind of journey. And um, it was just been uh, working with, well, having been mentored by exceptional people uh, and people committed to social justice. It was a big decision to go to Brazil, right? I mean, that was like a, you know, that's not an easy choice. I mean, and given, I mean, now you've made, this is your home. This is where you've, you, you've been. And I, and I don't know whether you were fluent in Portuguese when you left, but that, that's a big decision. What, what, how did you make that? Yeah, so, you know, and it, it shows the kind of um, the changes in paradigms, you know, that for somebody who was interested in global health and particularly in issues at that intersection of social justice and health, Back then, the paradigm was you went to you went abroad for one or two years, set up your laboratory, came back, set up your laboratory to do translational research. And the big question that came to uh, to me, to maybe the discomfort of my wife and my uh, my chief Warren Johnson, was that um, it was that the people that you trained it takes about ten years or more for them to start, whether medical students or master's or PhD students, and then become established. And, um, and that, you know, for me, impressed the, uh, the commitment, ever more critical when we think about community, when we're thinking about, you know, embodying the, the vision of having the community solve their own health problems. It requires a long-term commitment in building up training programs and creating pipelines through uh, high school Head Start programs, college work study programs, so you can get cohorts of people from the communities to solve their own health problems. Again, with the theme of try to build 
ground-up solutions to problems rather than top-down solutions. So I, I want to get back to, you know, what you're doing is population health, public health, you know, at, at particularly Brazil, global level, also applies domestically in the state of Connecticut. But you also have been an active clinician right up until uh, this time. And, and uh, Dr. Fauci, who just retired, also continued to round up until he was about 80 uh, at the NIH. And I'm just wondering if you could give our listeners some sense of why you did that and how does it inform the way you think about your field of both infectious disease as well as public health and epidemiology? Yeah, so I, th I think, Howie, in that sense, you and, and Harlan are really good, good examples and role models, um, you know, not only of the proverbial physician scientists, but, but people who care and people who translate that care through, through their research and uh, in a broader context. And I think we all strive, and both of you are faculty in my institution, which is the Yale School of Public Health. We strive in public health to serve people and communities. And we can only do that if we, if we listen and learn. And you know, taking care of patients and their families provides that opportunity, grounded in service and uh, care, healthcare and uh, in empathy. It's not the only way. You know, some of the best people I know um, are uh, at doing this are non-medical people. For example, our government leaders in Connecticut, uh, you know, very much, very much impressed by people. Harlan served together on the Reopen Connecticut Advisory Group, people like Indra Nui, um, Governor Lamont, uh, many of the people in the Department of Public Health who really had a feel or a tie-in or a connection with communities and pop populations. But I think the sine qua non, or you know, the the requirement is that we have to listen and learn. And I, I find it so useful as you do in order to identify what's an important problem from a patient. And then whether we're going back to the laboratory or whether we're doing going out to the community, uh, trying to develop solutions or, or mobilize or train people to develop solutions for that purpose. One of the things I'm pondering lately is this, you know, the, where we should be pushing our view about healthcare, because for so long we've had this paradigm of, of biology, you know, and we learned in medical school of pathophysiology and government. We, we really over-index almost, I believe, on, on thinking about things only in biological terms when really it's these social determinants that are so much more dominant for so many people with regard to health. Now they're mediated, of course, through biology, but I'm just saying that in terms of causal underpinnings. And, and your work has been so much around social marginalization and how the urban ecology can affect the emergence of diseases and then how people's health and health outcomes are affected by the social context of their lives. And, you know, you're talking, it's interesting. You say, I go to Brazil, I'm involved. I have one great public health intervention was actually these transfers of payments. I mean, you know, the eradication of poverty. And I believe that we're often too, too myopic as we think about health and aren't opening our eyes to the kind of various determinants, including poverty, that are driving so much of the health suffering in the country because of, you know, our, our sort of dichotomization, our, our sequestration of thinking about just the biology as opposed to thinking about the social context. You've been in this for a while. What are your thoughts about how we bridge this? And, and is it really just public health over here and, and medicines over here? Or, or can we begin to have a synthesis where we really understand these social determinants and, and emphasize them just as much as we do kind of basic biological causes of disease. 
Where do you stand on this now? Yeah, so so I, I think all we have to do is just look back at the pandemic and, and look at the lessons learned you know, from from the pandemic and and just to list some several of of many you know that that are out there. You know, the first is is that um, you know the the during you know during the pandemic we saw the, our most vulnerable populations whether they were here in Connecticut or in the United States or throughout the world, harbor the burden of the, you know, of the COVID pandemic. The second issue is, is there are several structural reasons. Um, you know, as, you, as you related about our healthcare system, we don't, in the United States, opposed to many other countries, such as Brazil, health is not a social right. And uh, we, we guarantee individual rights, civil rights here in the United States, but we don't guarantee social rights. And that is a key structural issue, you know, in many things downstream, whether it's the fragmentation of our healthcare system, whether it's marginalization of population stems from, from one of the, those key, uh, that key structural issue. The second is, I think, the, the part of uh, ideology and dogma. Um, you and I, Harlan, we went to the same medical school uh, we learned the same textbooks. Uh, when we looked at infectious disease, it was just the interaction between the microbe and the, and, and the person. Um, and very little of our education was focused on, on the importance of social determinants of health. And that played out badly for us during the pandemic. You know, we, we, can see, we can look towards the great achievements and certainly the biomedical achievements, whether they're diagnostic tests, whether they're, they were the antivirals or whether the vaccines that came out. But but you know, but certainly one of the biggest failures was the lack of investment in social behavioral sciences and the emphasis of biomedical sciences. And that wasn't just in the last several years. This is over decades. And uh, you know, we have to look towards our research bodies, you know, who 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 fund us, you know, or fund people like us, you know, to to look at the, those issues. So key structural issues, but key ideological issues that really got us in a bad place. And, uh, in, 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 in we compare ourselves to other countries which uh, were much more flexible and much more resilient. I, I take many of the Asian countries, right, who at a turn of the dime could re, you know, reformat uh, themselves. So there are deep-rooted causes, and, and we really need a, a good reflective moment, which we haven't had. Everyone myself included, wants to get back to normal. But we haven't had that reflective in really getting at the structural issues, the structural barriers that have, you know, that would root causes. In addition to working at the social determinants level, you've also been building sort of the feedstock of talent in Brazil and elsewhere. And one of the concerns I think all of us have is that if you bring people from another country to the United States and train them, they may not go back and you may be actually exacerbating a, a brain drain. And so I know you've actually put some thought into how do you avoid doing that with the best of intentions when you train you know, physicians, graduate students, and, and even uh, earlier trainees. Can you tell us a little about your thoughts on how do we help raise the level of technical and professional knowledge in Brazil and elsewhere. Yeah, so I think, Howie, you, you, picked, you, you touched on an important point that faces us in global health, and, and that certainly is imbued in the discourse on democratizing, decolonizing global health. It goes beyond, much beyond the brain drain. It really goes down to 
the, the, the inequities in our business model, our financing model, and the incentives that we have worldwide. Um, we are setting up, for example, I'll give a good example. We're setting up collaborations with uh, various institutions, including the Brazilian Ministry of Health. At Yale, we've had over 10 years a memorandum of understanding. The worst thing we could do to a Brazilian or a Ugandan or a South African or a Cambodian is to take their best and brightest, bring them here to do their PhD or the postdoctoral training and have no place to set them back, but also to weaken their educational processes, their PhD programs, their research programs. Um, and th so there's a lot of um, predatory um, forces within global health. And, and that gets to the point where equity and outcome requires equity and process. And that's what I think many of us are having to grapple with. And, uh, and you know, fortunately, much of that dialogue is being driven by Brazilians, by Ugandans, by South Africans, and uh, to, to really call, call us out on, on much of the paradigms that we've, we've been based on, which our you know, business model has been based on, whether it's for research or for training in global health. You know, we're getting to the end, and I just want to, again, express appreciation for you. You know, given everything you've done, I just wonder if we could, and we have a lot of students who listen to this, and and maybe you could convey an anecdote or a little bit of wisdom and advice to people listening to your career and thinking like that might be something they would be interested in. And, you know, what, what would you say to them? What kind of, uh, what would you like to convey? Yeah, so... So I, I, I think the first, and, and I, I've gotten great advice over the years, and, and there are two proverbs that were given, one by my, um, one by Pierce Gardner, who was a well-renowned global health educator um, from SUNY Stony Brook. And he says, pick a worthy topic and find a great mentor. And uh, in worthy topics, his list was the UN Millennium uh, Developmental Goals. Now they're the UN Sustainable Goals, and just picking one of those and um, and start and and, st and dive in, and finding a great mentor. And I was fortunate in my life to find a great me mentor and role model in that issue. I think the second issue, which really and it gets back to the issue of democratizing, decolonizing global health, is is the issue of um, of how to do this, how to be an equal, whether it's with your collaborators internationally or with the community and how to work, work as equals in the discourse. Not a very easy thing to do, uh, given the structural constraints, but embedded in that is thinking about, which was the other proverb from my chief, Warren Johnson, who is your successor? So, so Warren told me one year after I arrived, um, Albert, the most important decision you're going to make is who's going to be your successor. And I kind of thought about that and I said, Warren, I just was there in Brazil for one year and now you already want me to leave. And but he was right in, in those successors for at least our team were the Brazilians, whether they're from the community or from the Brazilian Ministry of Health. Many of these people we've trained have now become vice ministers or, or, or directors of communicable diseases in leadership positions. So I, I would I would. I would give those two two pieces of advice to people thinking about the future and thinking of doing the right thing. Yeah, that's that's a great way to end, Albert. And uh, you know, I like the idea of having sustainable human capital, um, and that's a, a great 
way to think about it. But thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, you are, as we say, an ubermensch, uh, just a great person at Yale, and we're so lucky to have you here. Yeah, it's great to see you, Albert. Thanks right. for joining us. Thank you very much, Howie. Thank you, Harlan. Well, that was a terrific interview with, with Albert, but now I want to get to my other favorite part of the <laughs> podcast besides our guest, is that's to listen to what's on your mind this week. Thanks, Harlan. So two items caught my attention this week, and there's more than just timing in common here. So first, earlier this week, The Lancet, a prestigious uh, journal from the UK, released a longitudinal analysis from what's called the Millennium Cohort Study on the role of dieting, happiness with appearance, self-esteem, and bullying in the relationship between mental health and body mass index, or in some ways, obesity, in UK adolescents. And this is a mammoth undertaking. It collected data on uh, youth from 11 to 17 years of age and tried to figure out temporally by time what was causing what. So it's still based on associations. We can't prove causation, but the associations can be tested so that you can see what is present at age 11 might predict what is present at age 14 or 17, right? So those are the questions. Does obesity lead to worsening mental health? Is it mediated by dieting or bullying? Other things like that. So here are some of the associations they found. One is happiness with appearance and self-esteem, but not dieting or bullying itself, mediates the relationship between BMI or obesity, really getting a higher BMI and mental health. So BMI at age 11, mental health at age 17. So put another way, higher BMIs at age 11 were associated with lower self-esteem and greater concerns with appearance at age 14 and then worsening mental health with including externalizing and emotional symptoms at age 17. There are many other findings of note, but self-esteem and concerns with appearance appear to have an impact on future behavior, future mental well-being, and even future worsening of obesity. And their concluding line in this was, academic institutions, public health researchers, and organizations, and the government should encourage positive body image and weight stigma education to facilitate a public narrative about obesity that is based on contemporary scientific evidence. Our findings reinforce calls for greater advertising and social media regulations to reduce weight stigma in adolescents. So fast forward basically one day, and our nation's Surgeon General and our alum of the School of Management and the School of Medicine issued a new advisory on social media and youth mental health. And one quote from his advisory uh, caught my attention. Children and adolescents on social media are commonly exposed to extreme, inappropriate, and harmful content. And those who spend more than three hours a day on social media face double the risk of poor mental health, including experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety. And then he specifically calls out social media may perpetuate body dissatisfaction, disordered eating behaviors, social comparison, and low self-esteem, especially among adolescent girls. And, and he had no knowledge about the timing of the Lancet study. That was pure coincidence. So you have this convergence of the scientific study 
And this advisory based on hundreds of papers over time that basically point out that we need to destigmatize obesity and help better understand the role of social media in reducing self-esteem and impairing one's sense of self-image. So my takeaways on this, and I'm curious to hear your opinion, social media is everywhere. We can't take it away. We can't undo its influence, but we can ask much more of social media companies and how they market and curate for children and adolescents. And if they can't, we can and should regulate them uh, for this key and vulnerable group. It isn't social media alone, by the way. You and I both know that body image has been glorified and vilified for much of our lives well before the advent of social media. More work needs to be done to destigmatize obesity. We invested a lot of time and money in my childhood, uh, in public school fitness challenges and similar activities. We need to be doing the same thing about physical well-being and doing it with intentionality. Oh my God, Howie, there's so much in what you just said. Uh, I don't even know where to start. And I know we're, we're getting to the end of the podcast. I mean, look, on the social media side, I do think that the government and, and, and society could have thought from the very beginning that this had the potential for great benefit, but also harm. And when companies were pursuing profit motives, they may not have been investing adequately in thinking about how you know they can mitigate the potential harms. I saw another study that suggested that the earlier the age that a, a child gets a cell phone, uh, the more likely it is that they're going to have mental health issues. And yeah. th- again, association studies, I'm not talking about right. causation, right. But, but it's raising the question about whether these powerful interventions in society are having untoward effects, especially when they're being used early, early access to the internet and all the things that anybody can see that, you know, uh, you, you know, how do we begin to think about this side? That's a whole set of issues. I'm glad uh, our, our, our friend Vivek, our Surgeon General, is taking on this issues. I'm glad people are studying it. We need to know more. We have to respect freedom, but we have to also understand that, you know, especially for kids, this may have untoward effects. So this is a, such an important area. Go ahead. I think I know. I think parents want guidance also, and I think that they are begging for some advice. Yeah, and, and and maybe that'll make it easier if there is some global advice around the rather than being, you know, sort of litigating this in in each family without evidence. Right. And then the thing about obesity is we have on one hand need to destigmatize, on the other hand. There are going to be new treatments, highly effective right. treatments that can really help people. And as we start thinking about obesity, like we do hypertension, maybe we, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about 100%. it in ways to say, how do we help people live with it? But rather, how do we address it? Right. And and yet this issue in the kids is really complicated because some people grow out of it. Some people don't. It's a, right. it's a marker. When do we start treating? How do we manage it? These are going to be big questions for society to grapple with. I'm so glad you brought this up. In, in this short time, I don't have any answers just to say that it, they're worth our consideration. Yep. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researcher, Ines Gil and Sophia Stumpf, 
and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are extraordinary, and they help us so much every week. They do. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.